The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. As always, Craig Carton with you for the next 30 minutes, a frank, open, honest conversation about gambling addiction and those like uh, myself who uh, become compulsive gamblers sharing their stories so you have a better understanding of what life is like for compulsive gamblers. As always, from Epic Risk Management, our pal Dan Trelaro joins us. Danny, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Craig. It's Memorial Day weekend. We've made it to the start of summer. Yeah, our final show for the month of May. It uh, just uh, sneaks right on by it when you, when you least expect it, no doubt. And uh, happy to have from uh, Toronto today... Johnny, who's also a gambler in recovery. Johnny, good morning. How are you? Good morning, guys. I'm doing well today. Good. I appreciate you coming on sharing your story. Uh, when was your last wager, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, my last date is October 17, 2018. All right. So uh, into year number four. Congratulations on that. It's awesome. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. Well, let's uh, let's share your story a little bit with people. Uh, how old were you when you first got exposed to gambling? Um, you know what? I was in my twenties and, uh, I was placing, I, I started off small and then, you know, I, I, I don't know if you guys know, but it just went from small little bets and just started gradually picking up, getting higher and higher till finally one day I was getting up to like a thousand dollars in bets. And, uh, it was, uh, it was tough. And you were betting exclusively on sports or were you also doing casino type games? No, I was doing uh, mainly sports. Okay. Yeah. So was there an early big win that kind of fueled the desire, or was it just you're a big sports fan and figured, hey, I know a lot of sports, I can be good at this? You know what? It, was, it, it all started for me when I was about 21, and I remember I have this ING account, and I saved up about $14,000. And uh, I went to my brother. My brother had this, his computer, and I'm like, print this out. I want to show dad. So I printed it out and $14,000 I saved. I was proud of myself. I brought it to my dad. And I was like, dad, look at this paper. Um, look how much I saved. And he looked at it and he was like, that's all you saved? And I remember walking back to my room and I was super pissed off. And I'm like, all right. From that day, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take that 14000 and double it to twenty eight, And uh, that didn't happen. That's interesting. So you were motivated wow. by oh, oh. by your dad kind of minimizing what you thought was a, a good deal of savings, and yeah. it was almost like you wanted to prove your dad wrong, and you or you wanted to somehow live up to his expectations. Yeah, I was like, you know what? Okay, fourteen thousand is not enough. Okay, I'm going to double it to twenty, and then I'll get it to fifty six, and then I'll get it to a hundred. Right, <laughs> Dan. Uh, I wonder. You wow. know, that's the first time I've heard that on this show that the gambling started as a means to prove somebody wrong. I guess the commonalities there, but I, 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 that's the first story we've heard like that. That's, that's what's so, I mean, just great about doing these shows, Craig, is we hear a different journey, a different story each week. And, and, and I agree with you. And it, it goes back to show that, you know, gambling addiction or addiction in general, it's an emotional issue. And, and I think Johnny just kind of highlighted that emotionally, like speaking parental approval, wanting to like say, hey, look, dad, look what I've done. You know, like, get that little pat on the back. Something right. tells me that, Johnny, you didn't get that very often from your dad. And it was almost like 
Were you kind of expecting that response in some strange way or like seeking his approval or were you really looking for a different response? No, I wasn't expecting it at all. I was expecting the, the opposite, you know, like, wow, I'm proud of you and, and whatnot, but, uh, and I'm competitive too. And like, I tell people all the time, like me, for me throughout my whole life, I go to a lot, I do a lot of meetings and stuff and I tell people I'm a full fledged tornado. I was, I'm the guy that did everything. I'm the alcohol, the drugs, the gambling, the women. Got it. And anything I could get my hands on. So was there a period when you started trying to double the 14 where you enjoyed some success and that fueled it more? Or was it a quick downward spiral from 14 to nothing? No, I mean, I could take I could take $100. People who knew me, I could take $100 and spin it, in, spin it into 10000 But uh, there was one time I remember I played some wagers, and I think it was seven or eight games. And I placed like a thousand dollars to two thousand on each game throughout the day. And what I did was, from the beginning of the day, like they say, certain games started at one thirty, three o'clock, you know, and on and on until the night. But I placed all the bets before the one one o'clock game. And I remember that day, I watched every single game lose, and I was like, "Oh my God, what am I gonna do with my life? I just completely lost all my money, right? Plus, plus some extra money where I had to go in." you know, borrow some money and, and pay off the debt. So I have to ask, as you're spiraling downward financially, and obviously I imagine you start to hide that because if your dad's not happy with you being up 14 grand or having 14 grand, he's certainly not going to react well to you blowing it all on gambling. Uh, what was your bottom of the barrel moment? What was your, you know, kind of come to Jesus moment? What happened? Uh, my bottom was actually in 20, 2018. In February, because I worked down here for the transit system, and uh, I went into work, and I got drug tested that day. And when I went into work, um, you know, they said you're getting randomly selected to get drug tested today. I said, "All right, no problem." I didn't, I didn't think I would fail it. And uh, when I went into work, I did the test. I spoke to the lady. I said, "How long would it take?" And they told me five days until, if you don't hear anything in five days, then you're scot free. Right. And on oh. the fifth day I was at work, I got a call from some strange number. I was like, okay, who's this? And then when I got to the end, I, I parked up parked up my bus, and then I called back the number, and they, they told me I failed my drug test. And right there immediately, um, I started to run. I called my union representative. I called, I called in at work. I called sick. I booked off right away. I went to my doctor. I got a doctor's note. And uh, when I talked to the union, they told me, buddy, you're going to get fired. Um, you got to come in and that's it. And, you know, I, I had my first kid when I was 18. And um, I was thinking to myself that day, I'm like, how, how is this happening right now? Because I'm so used to working my butt off, like, throughout my whole life. And now everything that I've built in my life is came crashing down. Let me stop you there, because you said something that I find interesting. You knew you had used drugs. Why did you not think you were going to fail the test? Well, because, you know, in my brain at that time, I thought it was a mastermind. I can get, I can get through anything, you know, and um, yep. this was just another obstacle, you know, and I was yeah. just like, okay, you know what, I, I can, I'm going to get through this. But when I spoke to the union representative, it was definite that they, when they said to me, you're getting fired, and I think there was no turning back. There's no, you know, swindling my way out of nothing. So how, what what did you do when that went down? Well, I booked off from work. I call, I went to the doctors. I got a you know I spoke to 
since I was 12. And, um, but when I went in there, I got fired and then they, I got fired me, uh, sorry, February, 2018. Mm-hmm. And then I had to go through all these channels of arbitration. And then finally on May 25th, 2018, they, uh, reinstated me under the condition that I go into a treatment center. Okay. And I was supposed to go into a treatment center. They said it would take three months. I was supposed to get in there August of 2018. And, um, you know, I didn't end up going into a treatment center until uh, October 17, 2018. And for me, I tell people this, it's sign- that date's really significant for me because the same day I was walking into a treatment center, uh, what I failed my drug test for, that same day I was walking in, October 17, 2018, uh, that same thing was getting legalized here in Toronto. Wow. So you're coming wow. to, your problems are coming to a head. You're going into a treatment center, and that same day, all of a sudden, the thing that you've been doing that's caused you all this pain and strife is now something that you can do legally, and it's no problem for everybody else. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm strolling my suitcase, my little roller suitcase down in Spadina, off of Spadina Station downtown. And I'm walking up to the treatment center and I'm saying to myself, I don't have a problem. I don't know what these people's problems. I'm still don't think I got a problem. I'm walking past people. Everybody's smoking outside. I'm like, look at this. Look at my life right now. I still don't think I have a problem. So what made you realize you have a problem? Well, when I went into that treatment center. And let me stop before you answer. I want to say, and I've shared the story and Dan has as well, just so you know. You know, I, I've we've lived the same life. You know, I yep. went to rehab and denied I had a problem. And it wasn't yep. until I heard other people's stories that were very similar to mine, if not exactly like mine, that I was willing to finally say, hey, I've got a problem. So I think, you know, we're, we're very similar in that yeah, even in rehab saying F you, you have a problem. I don't have the problem. So I, <laughs> we, I, we relate to that. So I'm to let you know. <laughs> well, you know what? That's the thing, though, right? Because Johnny. His whole life wants to, wanted the spotlight on him, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, everything's about me, you know, that's, and I didn't realize it at that time, it was all these fears and worries I had, right, that was covering up, you know, putting that spotlight on me made me feel comfortable. So now I go into this treatment center October 17th, and I have to live there for 28 days, and there's 28 guys in there. And I'm looking around when I get into this treatment center. I'm like looking at all the guys. I'm judging everybody. I'm like, these guys have problems. I don't have no damn problems. I don't know why the heck I'm here. Yep. And, um, you know, when I'm in there, the first first night I go to bed, I'm, I'm like, these guys in here are absolutely crazy. Somebody's going to kill me tonight. Hmm. So I went to my bed. And I don't, I never, before I never prayed all the time. Only when the problem hit, I'm like, oh God, please help me. You know, and that night when I went to bed, it was the same thing. I put my hands together, I prayed, and I'm like, you know what, God, please. This was my exact prayer. God, please, I'm begging you tonight. Please just keep me safe, and don't let nobody come and stab me in my back tonight. You know, and um, about a week into the, you know, living in that treatment center and hearing the guys share, because every Sunday we have a care and share, and guys would sit in, we sit in a circle, and just listening to some of these stories, um, it brought me to tears, and I really said to myself, you know what? I went around after about a week to all the guys, and I'm like, you know what? I got to apologize to you guys because you guys aren't crazy. You guys, like, they had, I heard some real stories, and I was like, I'm actually crazier than all of you guys. Let me stop you right there talking to Johnny. He's in uh, Toronto, and, of course, Dan Chilaro. 
This is Hello, My Name is Craig. Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton with you, Dan Trelaro, Epic Risk Management, and Johnny, who's in Toronto, uh, kind enough to share his story. Johnny, when we left off, you were in the, uh, the, the therapy center and uh, started to come to terms with the fact that you had a real problem, and part of that was hearing other people share their problems. Once you got out of there, um, was your life different immediately? Was it hard to live life differently? And how did you have that conversation ultimately with your family about what you were going through and where you wanted to be? So, first of all, when I went into the treatment center, my dad, two weeks before he had a stroke and uh, I was calling around to everybody. I was telling them, like my union, I was telling people, I'm not going into this treatment center. Uh, I want to, I got to be with my father and everywhere, everybody who I called, they were just like, you know what? You got to go. And like that whole time leading up to going into the treatment center from February, when I lost the job all the way up to October, yeah. I never, I never told my father because me and my father lived together. And, um, I would put my uniform on and just pretend like I'm still going to work. Wow. So leading up to that treatment center, um, I knew because he had a stroke, he was okay, but I had to tell him something. So what I told him was, I got to go away, go away for training. And then I went into the treatment center. And um, actually, this is a really cool story. I met a, a man in there. They call him New York Tom. He's a counselor in there. And I remember every morning when I wake up and I'd have breakfast, He'd walk into into the um, where we're eating, and he'd see me. And I I remember a couple mornings I'm wearing a Penn State hoodie, and he'd walk in and be like Johnny B Penn State, and uh, he, he'd sit down with me and he goes, Why are you wearing a Penn State hoodie? You you got to be a Texas Longhorn. <laughs> Texas Longhorn, okay. And then another day he walk in and he start talking to me about the Texas Longhorn. Him and his wife go down to Texas. They watch the game, and he, he'd say the exact attendance. Like, I don't remember the number, 69,132. And I'm like, what is, it, what is he talking about? Right. And then, and then he'd always tell me these stories about the Texas Longhorns. And then um, November 14, uh, 2018 was my last day in the treatment center. And I've been going to meetings with guys in there. And um, I remember November 15th, I knew that I, I wanted to continue that. So I found this meeting at 1230 to go to. And uh, I remember leaving that on the 14th of November, and I remember I cried like a baby all the way home. I didn't want to leave. I went in there with resistance, and then on the day I had to leave, I, I didn't want to leave. And then on the 15th, I attended my meeting at 1230 in the afternoon, and I'm sitting in this, in this room with a bunch of people. I don't know anybody. I'm sitting in a corner. I'm afraid again. And uh, I hear a knock on the, bank, the, the back door, and this guy walks in. I don't know him from anybody. But the only thing I noticed on his head was he's wearing a Texas Longhorn hat on his head. And I'm like, holy smokes. Wow. I'm like, Tom is a prophet. He knows hmm. something I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, for the beginning, um, I didn't say much to my parents. It was probably after two weeks because I was learning how to be honest and more importantly about that self-honesty. And about two weeks, that's when I talked to my dad. I told him, you know, sit down. I want to talk to you. And I told him, you know, um, I didn't go for training. I actually went to a treatment center. And he's like, I knew that. Hmm. Like, How did you know that? 
you know. So I I kind of kept it on the download at the beginning. Right. But I did feel some sort of change, and it was like anybody who I was interacting with, I was like, you got to do this program. You got to come here. And now when I look back at it, I laugh because I'm like, you know, when your eyes are closed for so long and then you start to learn about yourself and you your eyes are opening, it's like you're happy, but you want that for everybody else. But when I look back, it was like everybody I came into contact, I was telling them that. I wonder, before we let you go, if you could speak to somebody who is starting their journey, someone who's not yet uh, in recovery, someone who has just come to terms with the fact that they have a problem or might have a problem, you know, where you are today as compared to where you were, you know, four years ago, uh, what you would say to someone who's at step one like you were back, you know, in October of 2018, what message would you say to somebody who is scared to death right now, world's, you know, caving in on them, they don't know that they could ever live without gambling, uh, they got a myriad of problems, and they're afraid that they're never going to get to the place that you're at. What would you say to them? Uh, I would say, you know, what for, well, for me, the one thing I've learned is that um, priority number one is myself. You know, I was walking around people-pleasing, and... Uh, you know, it was, it was easy for me to put that mask on, you know, and I, I lived with a lot of fear and worry. And, uh, you know, I could fool anybody. I didn't love myself. I didn't care about myself. And, you know, the one thing I learned to, from coming into the rooms was um, self-love, you know, it, it's important, you know, and, and acceptance, you know, accepting where people are and not trying to control people. And, and you know, focusing on self for me was a big one and learning to, to love myself and you know, I have a sponsor today and, you know, learning about, tell me he was a liar, he's jealous. And I'm like, I'm not a liar, I'm not jealous. Hmm. And as I walked through and, you know, started doing the work on myself, I started to realize that's really the path that I was walking. You, you know, know, Dan, like, I want to let you chime in here. You know, we spend a lot of yeah. time worrying about the effect and impact we have on our loved ones. And it's real and it's serious. And I, I would never minimize what we put those people through but Johnny talking about you know self-love and self-honesty you know I think is a very powerful thing for us to discuss because until you get that help for yourself or love yourself you can't possibly be that kind of person to people who you disappoint no and and it makes me think of the serenity prayer you know accepting the things that you cannot change the courage to change the things that you can and having the wisdom to know the difference and it's so important to have self-love and acceptance. And Johnny, you hit it right on the right on the mark, man. I mean, I can hear early in the story, you're sitting in meetings, you're sitting in places comparing yourself to other people. And as you go through recovery, and as we've all experienced, you start getting more compassion. You know, it goes from com comparison to compassion. And that's a huge difference because we start seeing ourselves and other people through a different lens. Like the walls start coming down. The fears, because that's what drives a lot of our, our decision-making, you know, the fear of not being worthy enough, the fear of failure, fear, you know, anger insulates all that stuff. We, we get mad at people. We escape. But when we can start becoming vulnerable and accepting who we are and loving ourselves and having that courage to, to let other people see us for us, it may not be pretty. They may not agree with it, but it's, it's who we are. That's when magical things, like really great things start happening. And I can just hear it through this entire journey. It's, it's really been great. Johnny, any final things you want to share about uh, your personal journey and story? We'd love to give you a chance to do that. 
you know what? I'm just grateful. You know, I'm I'm really grateful today that for, for a better life today and you know, being able to accept where people are and you know, I love my family. I know I put them through a lot. And um you know, the best way I can do things today in my life is lead by an example. You know, I'm not yeah. trying to change anybody. The only person today um I'm trying to change is myself. And I know that um I don't got to think 5 years, 10 years, even 3 days down the line. You know, I get I, I can think about today and I can enjoy today and um you know, that's that's the most rewarding thing for me. And you know what? It doesn't matter. We all come from different walks of life and we all believe have different belief systems, but you know what? All in all, we're all one. You know, and 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 that's the beauty of my life today. And well, um you know, I'm great I'm grateful and thankful for you guys to have, you know, give me this opportunity. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing yeah. it. The more people get to hear more people like us, you know, the easier it is, I think, for people who don't have an addiction problem to understand, you know, what the addict goes through. So thank you so much for sharing that. Enjoy your uh, weekend. And uh, one day I would love to shake your hand and look you in the eye and let you know how proud I am of you for sharing your story and on a daily basis conquering uh, the addiction. Well done on that. And thank you so much for joining us. All right, guys. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, Thanks, Johnny. Johnny. Thank you. Okay. You know, Dan, one thing I want to say before we get out of here in relation to Johnny's story, I was talking to uh, the mom of a young addict, and one of the things we discussed was the addict's never going to get help if you bring them, you know, kicking and screaming. It isn't until we recognize that we need help that we can actually get help. And I know that's very frustrating for the uh, family of addicts who are, you know, dying for them to recognize they have a problem and, you know, they want to force them into rehab or force them to go to a GA meeting. But the reality is, until the addict, myself, yourself, Johnny, et cetera, are willing to acknowledge we have a problem, we're never going to get help. No, we're not. And, and that's the thing. It's, it's like, you know, we could be talking to someone about how to fix the problem that they don't even realize they have. And you're coming at it from two different angles. Uh, when, when family members, they, they want to accelerate the process. And, I, and you and I, I mean, I wish it was that easy, but sometimes you've got to walk through that fire and timing is all relative. Might be a long time, might be a short time for some people. Each journey is unique. When family members ask, you know, what more can we do or what can we do? I always let them know, know the resources. Make sure you are armed with the information so that when they do come to you, and they do want that help, and they want to understand what's available and how it works, know the information. Just control what you can control. Have the resources. Have the information at your fingertips. Because, Craig, you and I know that window of opportunity is small. Like, it's short. Someone asks for help, and if you're not ready to help them or you don't know what to do, they may not want it in an hour or a day. So it's just control what you can control and have the resources available at your fingertips. Yeah, and I'm sure it's maddening and very frustrating oh, when you see a loved one going down that path and you're desperate for them to go get help. And, you know, the sad reality is I can't speak to any other addiction, but I've been yeah. around long enough. And, you know, I've talked to enough people who have you know, drug addictions and alcohol addictions on top of gambling where I think there is some, and I, I use this word a lot, commonality, where unfortunately... You know, for a lot of people that are related to or involved with someone who has a gambling problem, you know, you're going to be frustrated. It's sad. But, you know, that person's not going to do what you think they should do to get the help they need until they're willing to acknowledge that they have a problem in the first place. And I'm sure that's got to be very maddening for loved ones of addicts. It has to be. Yeah, it 
it's extremely maddening, and I can't relate to it either. I, I've had some some family history where I can kind of relate from a different type of addiction, but not the gambling. So, you know, it makes me think of a conference that I attended years ago where the, the doctor of behavioral health said that the end goal of treatment is a sustainable and meaningful long-term recovery. That's the end goal of treatment. But if you bring someone kicking and screaming, to your point, into treatment, that, that's going to be short-term. They're not ready to change. They're not yeah. ready to transform. You're going to have short-term results. You, know, you, you really have to feel it inside to say, I'm, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, and I need to change. I need to do life differently because life is unmanageable. And, and that's why we encourage family members, don't enable, don't bail them out. Don't pay off the credit card bills. Don't lend them money because you're going to bring them to that to that stage a little bit sooner if you start cutting off different elements. So there are things that we can encourage family members to do. It doesn't feel good. It sucks, actually, to see a, a loved one struggling and kicking them out of the house or not you know, financially supporting them. But sometimes that's what you have to go through in order to get that end goal of long-term and sustainable recovery no doubt always appreciate your time and uh hope you get to enjoy uh, your holiday weekend with your family i plan to do the same and uh we'll do this again uh, next weekend for sure uh dan trelaro epic risk management and we always want to thank the new jersey council on compulsive gambling for sponsoring this show and remind people if you or a loved one does have a problem you can start the process of recovery by calling 1-800-GAMBLER danny thank you good job i'll talk to you next week Sounds good. I think we've got a hanger steak on the grill for this weekend, Craig. Perfect. Low and slow. That's that's the only way to go. Uh, Mark Malusis is coming up next. And then Evan and I are back on Tuesday after the uh, three-day uh, Memorial Day weekend at 2 o'clock. Have a great weekend, and thank you so much for listening to Hello, My Name is Craig.